1: I'm Dr. Matthew Otto here with my good friend Paul Williams, and tonight we're going to be doing a recap of just a fantastic, action-packed, pearl-packed episode where we talked about liver tests. And uh, Paul, we're not supposed to say LFTs, but you know, Paul, I'm going to say LFTs for this because it's just easier.
0: It's old habits die hard, and I liver enzyme tests and lets it just does not roll off the tongue as much, so it's it's hard. Sorry, apologies in advance, Dr. Tapper.
1: Paul, would you tell the audience, what exactly is it that we do on The Curbsiders?
0: Sure. Happy to. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And in this particular flavor of podcast, this is the Tales from the Curbside, where we're going to be recapping a semi-recent episode, just a little bit of space learning to make sure that we understand all the things that we learned and what was just a jam-packed episode full of learning. Uh, we are, of course, talking about episode 293, perhaps number one in your hearts. This was the festive <laughs> liver tests uh, with the amazing Elliot Tapper, who talked us through interpretation of all the liver enzyme tests. So by the time we were done, we we basically felt like we were, I don't know, in our second year of hepatology fellowship. I feel well prepared to take on almost any liver problem. I don't know about you, Matt.
1: I-, I did too. And speaking of ready to take on liver problems, uh, super producer, Dr. Elena Gibson, who was with us. I, I have the feeling she's headed for GI, maybe hepatology, Paul. At the end of the episode, she basically recaps
0: <laughs> pretty much
1: everything we're going to cover on the show tonight in a two-minute span. Um, so that's pretty impressive. But Elaine is not with us tonight, so we'll be channeling both <laughs> so her with us. and Elliot as we talk through this. And to start off, Paul, we talked about acute liver injury on the show a lot, but we are going to put into this show some pearls about chronic liver injury as well and how you can recognize some of these chronic patterns that we deal with in primary care. One of the things that when you're that I hadn't really been familiar with before this was this R score where you're essentially looking at like ratios of the ALT elevation to the Alk elevation and it helps you stratify, like if it's if the ratio is greater than five, and you're going to pull this up on MD Calc and plug in the numbers. But hepatocellular injury is greater than five. Between two and five is this mixed picture, and then a score of less than two on that R score is more of a cholestatic picture. So let's talk about the hepatocellular injury pattern first. Paul, do you have a favorite pattern of uh, LFTs? By the way,
0: it's it's so hard to pick one because um, they all. <laughs> They all generate just huge amounts of anxiety for me. I, I do kind of like the hepatocellular injury pattern, um, because at least that kind of gives you something to chase after. I think we're gonna talk about some of the the more common laboratory abnormalities that we see in primary care practice that just kind of that are not quite as as striking and don't give you as much to chase down. So at least with hepatocellular injury, I feel like I have some idea of where to start. But we 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 got a, a list of sort of common places and common tests to begin with when we're doing an initial evaluation. Did you wanna talk about some of those?
1: Yes. So hepatocellular injury, this is where the transaminases are going to be the predominant elevation, and specifically the ALT is what we look at. And as we know from our friend Scott Matherly, Liverprof, the ALT in a woman should be around 20 or less, and in a man, around 30 or less. I know your lab may say 40, but that's not necessarily what you should go by. So if you see predominant elevation, like more than two times the upper limit normal, Paul, I feel is like where I start to, you know, get my interest especially peaked. So more than two times the upper limit of normal is where you would think about this. And this is this is a pretty big differential diagnosis. If this is a very acute thing, Paul. So let's talk about acute first. If this is very acute, you got to think about all the viral types of hepatitis so you'd send like the hep b hep c hep a and then acetaminophen and any other kind of drug-induced liver injury paul uh is is always on there even if they so acetaminophen an overdose but any kind of drug-induced liver injury you gotta always think about dilly ischemia and then autoimmune hepatitis which i feel like i'm starting to understand a little bit better do you do you pull the trigger on ordering the autoimmune hepatitis labs frequently paul
0: uh, frequently, would be overstating it. I feel like since listening to Dr. Tapper, I, I probably do it more often now that I have a clearer sense of what I'm going after and, and what I should be worried about. So I, I do, you know, you have to think of it to order it. So I, I've been doing it more recently, I think.
1: Yeah. And that that can present either w- with like acute or chronic elevation. And uh, the labs that you're probably going to start with for this, I already mentioned, you're going to check for the, the hepatitis panel, the acute hepatitis panel, acetaminophen levels, and then for autoimmune hepatitis it's an ANA, it's usually an immunoglobulins, usually IgG that you're ordering, and then anti-smooth muscle antibody. And what Dr. Tapper told us is that they're not usually weakly positive, Paul. They're like significantly positive. And also, of course, you're going to review all the medications that the person's on. The Livertox website is an NIH website that we've plugged many times. It's It's a great website to start. And Dr. Tapper says that his heart rate is intimately linked, Paul, to how high the patient's bilirubin is because he thinks that's really a barometer for how severe this acute liver injury is, um, which I thought was a great tip, because the patient with a, a bilirubin of 0.9, even if their transaminases are in the thousands, that's not going to get him as scared as somebody whose bilirubin is like 15 and transaminases in the thousands.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I think the other thing, going back to the autoimmune hepatitis thing, I, you know, I, we're once you're super suspicious for it, I, I imagine you're no longer going to be dealing with that patient exclusively in the primary care setting. I would hope you would involve our hepatology colleagues. But one of the things that I thought was interesting is even with compelling labs, it sounds like Dr. Tapper would not start treatment necessarily until he has biopsy-proven autoimmune hepatitis. So yeah. it's, it's something he needs really tissue before he actually feels comfortable actually treating it. It's not something he would treat empirically, right. which I thought was an interesting and probably important point.
1: And- it's not one of those things that's so uncommon that you're like never going to see a case. I mean, we'll talk about Wilson's, um, but autoimmune hepatitis. I mean, we've I've run across it in the wild. It is something that you should think about. I think as a general internist, it's, it's within our wheelhouse to be at least thinking about it, testing for it. And then, yes, we're going to get someone else involved to help us uh, with this. I don't think we'll be the primary ones managing it.
0: I feel like the usual tempo is you feel pretty suspicious for it you got hepatology involved and they're like no this ain't it and then you go back to looking for it for some more but yeah that could be my experience they
1: pat you on the head and they're like go back <laughs> that's right that's cute kid go back to managing the patient's blood pressure well <laughs> hey curbsiders you know we love our birch mattresses paul and i have talked about this before we both had Some pretty pathetic mattresses, saggy, old, lumpy, uncomfortable. But then we got our birch mattresses. I've been sleeping on my birch mattress for over six months now, and I gotta say, it was a tremendous upgrade. It is so comfortable. I love it, my partner loves it, and we're sleeping great. So, let me tell you a little bit about birch. Their mattresses are made right here in America with just three materials sourced straight from nature. Organic latex, New Zealand wool, and American steel springs. Your birch mattress will be shipped straight to your door with no contact delivery, free shipping, free returns, and they have a 25 year warranty. And you get to try it out for 100 nights risk free because if you don't like it, they're gonna pick it up. But you know what? I know you're gonna love it, so don't even worry about that. So treat yourself, upgrade your mattress, and check out birchliving.com slash curb. Birch is giving $200 off all mattresses and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com curb. That's $200 off all mattress orders and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. Paul, I'm going to do that thing where I ask you a leading question, <laughs> sure. and uh, most certainly I'm going to have the wrong idea. So, Paul, when I see acute liver injury, I should be really worried about hemochromatosis, and there's some other things on that list too. Am I am I right, or am I horribly wrong?
0: This this falls under my favorite rhetorical framework that we do in here, where you try to get me to endorse <laughs> publicly bad practice patterns. So, when the lawsuit comes, there's just permanent documentation of my incompetence. <laughs> But no, the point that you're making and that Elliot Tapper made is that things like hemochromatosis and alpha-1 antitrypsin disease or deficiency are not – it's worth thinking about, but they don't happen acutely. You're not going to see an acute liver injury from these things. These are chronic diseases that will take time and will declare themselves over time and not all of a sudden in, in your older patients. We all like to think about Wilson's disease because it's I, – I think because we all want to find the Kaiser Fleischer rings even though we don't have the equipment to do it. Um, <laughs> And that can cause an acute injury, but it is exceedingly rare, especially in older patients. So it's it's far less likely than some of the other candidates that we talked about. And even if you would just kind of fire off the cereuloplasmin, unfortunately, it's just not that great a test in isolation. It's not very sensitive or specific. So even if it comes back um, abnormal, it's not entirely clear what to do with it. And in, in, in most contexts, so uh, you should not be thinking hemochromatosis now for one deficiency in the acute setting. And Wilson's disease, you know, God bless you if you find it, but probably not.
1: Yeah. And the point that he made about alpha-1 antitrypsin, which I thought was a great analogy, which maybe will help people is alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. He's like, that's like kindling. He's like for, you know, if someone has fatty liver or some other insult to the liver, it really can accelerate the pace of things is what he was saying. It's like, you know, it really feeds the liver disease, but it's not necessarily something that's going to present with like fulminate hepatitis and, you know, acute liver failure.
0: Yeah. And as we're we're talking about the hepatocellular injury like these things make sense like uh, certain toxins and then certain infiltrative processes but he he did make the point that he will often check imaging specifically an ultrasound because it stone disease and obstruction can cause these transient elevations in transaminases so you can still it's still worth investigating making sure you're not finding something that's actually causing right. some cholestasis which can still cause something that looks kind of like a hepatocellular pattern so don't rule out uh, obstructive disease just solely on the basis of transaminase elevation because it can manifest that way Absolutely,
1: yeah. I, I low threshold. I think that was a theme of the episode was low threshold to get a right upper quadrant ultrasound. I mean, you don't need to pull put it, give an MRCP to everybody, but uh, certainly a right upper quadrant ultrasound in a first round of testing for someone with a patocellular injury or cholestatic injury, no one's going to fault you for that. What they will fault you for, Paul, is. You know, I. Uh, you know, Paul. More testing is better. I love oh, it.
0: Wait, let me try this, Matt. <laughs> let me. Uh,
1: so, Matt, let me ask
0: you. <laughs> <laughs> when we get the order set for uh, liver tests, should I be checking off every single viral box that could possibly actually have hepatotropism? Is that is that what I'm hearing from you? We should just check every possible viral etiology when we're looking at acute liver injury.
1: Uh, Paul, you're taking my <laughs> you're taking my style. I like it. Uh, no, Paul, we should not be doing that. Okay. Uh, this feels thank great. you, thank you for the setup. Yeah, we we talked about this. If the patient is immunosuppressed, if they're on, if they're getting chemotherapy. If it's a patient who's had a transplant and they're on immunosuppression, yes, you can think about HSV, CMV, EABV, all these other viral tests, but otherwise, you know, that is not really, that's not, should not be part of your routine testing. So I I said, check for the viral hepatitis, like the hep C, hep B, hep A, those ones, but you don't need to check for these other tests. And then also we talked about the autoimmune labs. There were three, there was the ANA, the IgG. And the uh, anti smooth muscle antibody, I always see like there's this liver kidney microsome, soluble liver antigen. He said those are really, you know, uh, one of them, the liver kidney microsome tends to be more in younger patients, and the soluble liver antigen antibodies tends to be in older patients, often women. You know, that should not just be sent for all comers with liver disease, especially if you're not working in like uh, a hepatology clinic. You, you're just, it's it's a low prevalence. You might get false positives or something. I would I would worry about.
0: I so rarely feel good about myself on the show, but I will say it's nice to be cautioned not to order tests that I've almost never heard of. So like <laughs> I'm, it's not like I was just firing those off willy nilly. So when he said don't order those, I was like, great, I am doing something right by not touching those tests.
1: Right. So it's, you know, they, they are, if you, if you look in like some of the guidelines and some of those like pocket medicine books, they do, they do list those things in there. But I feel like that's, that's part of the danger of panels is that like, if you don't, if you don't have like that extra round of knowledge, then you could be ordering this extra testing and uh, it's more work for you. Cause you got to follow it up. And then if it comes back positive, you're like, oh, then you've created a problem yeah, for everybody. Yeah. All right, Paul, let's move on to talking about cholestatic injury and where do you start with that and how do you recognize it
0: great question well it's it's as we discussed in the episode i usually recognize it by inadvertently finding it um by incidental testing so half jokingly i ordered the comprehensive metabolic panel and i'll find out the alkaline phosphatase comes back elevated and i'm like what do i do with this maybe with a little bit of elevation of the transaminases But I think the key thing that we talked about here is paying attention to symptoms and actually looking at the patient in front of you, which is hopefully a larger theme of the show. So if this is someone who comes in who has a cholestatic liver injury pattern, by that we mean uh, significantly elevated alkaline phosphatase and maybe sort of minor transaminase elevation, um, or at least the ALKFOS is elevated out of proportion to transaminases, you should evaluate the patient for the symptoms that would be reflective of that. So if they come in with fatigue or itching, then you should be a little bit concerned about primary, or maybe more than a little bit concerned about primary biliary cholangitis, which... Admittedly, it's relatively uncommon. Um, And then there's about a billion other things that cause cholestatic disease, including things like um, primary biliary cirrhosis, primary sclerosis and cholangitis, choletocholysis. Sarcoidosis is one that is, I think, found sometimes this way. We talked a little bit about Dilley. And then something that I found reassuring as we had this discussion, I'm not sure how often you see this, Matt, is someone who just has uh, the picture for this metabolic-associated fatty liver disease. So you have your patient who has Diabetes and perhaps some central obesity, and or at least some evidence of insulin resistance, who has this abnormal liver pattern that looks kind of cholestatic, but not, um, but is without symptoms. Then you can maybe wonder if that if you're not dealing with uh, maffold as opposed to some of these more sinister things.
1: That really struck me too. I just I hadn't really commonly made that association, but I it makes sense. I, I think it's just so rampant uh, ma- maffold this metabolic associated fatty liver disease that. Of course it can it's going to cause all sorts of different patterns not just the typical hepatocellular predominant and then for this Paul he talked about the antimitochondrial antibody and he mentioned that he he often if he's ordering that he's often getting an ANA and anti smooth right. muscle antibody with that as well um, which I thought was was a good tip because I'd like to know what the hepatologist is most likely going to do because if I'm ordering this round of tests in the primary care office, I want to I want to make them have a productive visit when I do end up referring the patient. Right. What, what's your approach to imaging here? As far as like, are you are you pulling the trigger on an MRCP commonly in the outpatient setting?
0: I'll tell you, in my, I would love to hear your practice with this. I will, my imaging will almost always include. I have have very low threshold to order ultrasonography. Like I, that's almost my default for any kind of liver pattern that I can't fully explain or don't feel comfortable with, which is most of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, it's, it would be unusual for me to pull the trigger. I think, independently on MRCP, I think probably at the point if I'm considering the MRCP, I should already be thinking maybe about referral to hepatology if that's kind of where we're headed. Because I, if it comes back negative. I'm going to need some help, but if it comes back positive, I'm probably going to need some help. So I'm not sure it's going to change yeah. the next step in my management plan. If I'm being, if I'm being honest,
1: yeah. Uh, mostly, I'm mostly I'm I'm ordering an MRCP when I'm working as a hospitalist and uh, looking for like acute stone disease. Um, I, right. I can't think of a time yet in the outpatient setting where I've done that, and I can't remember if you mentioned it yet, Paul. The a common variable immunodeficiency, CVID. He did mention that that can cause a liver disease, and especially in his clinic, it's not uncommon to find somebody with that. So, I think just taking a history, like, are you somebody who's had recurrent infections? You know that that don't really make sense. That that might be something that you'd be thinking about yeah, um, in those sure. patients, and something that's potentially treatable as well. So, I, I think it's another good reason to ask about it. And did we uh, other things on the differential here? paul i I don't know i think I think we went through pretty much everything so to to, to recap it was like obstructive diseases like p b c could be p s c it could be stone disease infiltrative stuff and then drug induced liver injury and even metabolic associated fatty liver disease and I guess more for a primary care, you'd be, you'd feel pretty, it'd be a pretty good day. You'd feel pretty good about yourself if if you diagnose common variable immunodeficiency associated liver disease, Paul, right?
0: Right. uh, Sure. Yeah. Based on um, liver findings alone. Yeah. I would, I would feel pretty heroic.
1: So I think we can move on to talking about the chronic, some of the chronic stuff, Paul, that we deal with more often in primary care. Cause we just talked through like more of like the acute liver injury, what kind of tests are we gonna fire off if it's a patocellular or cholestatic pattern. And I guess we should say if it's a mixed pattern, you can do all of the above. You know, you can get the antimitochondrial antibody, the autoimmune hepatitis labs, the imaging and and all the hep the serologies that we we mentioned. So for chronic ALT elevation, Paul, this one is just like, I think one of the banes of primary care. The other one that you're going to talk about is the isolated ALKFAS elevation. Oh, but the gone. these it's so common in my practice that like someone has an ALT in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and maybe they have a little bit of an AST elevation, but often the rest of their liver tests are just stone cold normal. And oftentimes, you know, my approach and this, this was a little bit of a conversation on Twitter after the episode, and Dr. Tapper sent out an article that he had written in 2017, and I believe it was it was one of the hepatology journals. I can't remember the exact journal. But basically, he said there's you, you can go with a focused testing strategy, or you can go with a more extensive testing strategy for this person that has this chronic elevation. And kind of like we talked about with, you know, the bilirubin being a barometer, and you know how sick is the patient feeling i mean most of these patients are totally asymptomatic they have no bilirubin elevation my practice is to i will send testing for hepatitis b and hepatitis c and i will ask them about their alcohol use and then i will get a right upper quadrant ultrasound and if i see like hepatic steatosis and this person's like 50 pounds overweight I'm probably not going to do much more, and I'm just going to follow that over time. I might add on more testing if something else rears its head. But Paul, what what's your general approach to this? No, I
0: I I think my approach is almost identical to yours. I think in part because so much of my patient population has all the right ingredients for the metabolic associated fatty liver disease, the common things being common, especially with the solitary ALT elevation. Like it just it just fits. Um, and so if I can I, I will do my due diligence, I will look for the viral causes, just as you say, I will make sure I have not started any funky medications. And I think Dr. Tepper made the point that even in patients with underlying maffold, if he starts something like a statin, you may see this transient bump, uh, in the transaminases that will then maybe sort of wane over time, or the sort of bump in and out of abnormality. But you know, in the absence of anything else localizing, and I have the right patient with the right phenotype in front of me, I, I will consider myself done if I see some steatosis on imaging, and I, I might do elastography or do the serologic measure of fibrosis just to get a sense of prognosis and whether or not I need to have them seen by hepatology as well. But beyond that, I don't do a lot of the fancy pants testing unless the patient just does not fit the picture that's in front of me.
1: Yeah, Paul, some other things that he mentioned, he likes to use a score like the FIB4, which is something you could just plug into your MD calc. The other one we had talked about is the NAFLD fibrosis score. And both of those look at things like AST, ALT, the platelet count, and age. That's the fibrosis four. And then the NAFLD fibrosis score is age, BMI, um, whether or not they have diabetes or impaired fasting glucose. And then it looks at the AST, ALT, platelet count, and albumin. So a lot of stuff that like we have in primary care. So these are very practical tests to use. And then that fibrosis serologic test that you that you mentioned Paul is that's like a panel that kind of gives you a score estimating the patient's risk for advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis and based on those you know that can kind of help you know if it's time to shunt somebody towards hepatology for a for a liver biopsy or for more advanced treatments which are constantly being evaluated so to recap here Paul and I in our primary care clinics are mostly just doing the simple things, looking at these scores, estimating how much fibrosis we think someone has. And for me, Paul, I'm not really ordering like going looking for Wilson's or autoimmune hepatitis, hemochromatosis, like all those things in all comers. I'm really trying to think about like, does it make sense that this patient has liver disease and do I need to be doing more advanced testing in this person or not? Yep, a reasonable,
0: parsimonious. I love it, Wanda.
1: Okay. Hey, curbsiders, how are you doing? How's your job? Are you happy? Are you looking for something else? Have you ever thought about locum tenens? You're looking to make some extra money on the side. Well, locumstory.com. They're our sponsor today, and they have a fantastic website with a lot of interesting facts and frequently asked questions about just what is locums and how can I get into this thing? Because let me tell you something, locums physicians, they make 33% more on average. And did you know that one third of locums physicians actually are working a full-time job in addition to it? And locums is great. You can work close to home. You can work in another state. You can even work in another country. If travel is your thing, this might be great for you because You can work when, where, and however much you want. And if you're intimidated and you're saying, hey, I don't want to deal with the hassle, well, most agencies actually arrange and pay for the cost of your airfare, rental car, and your hotel during your assignment. So all that's off your plate. So where can you start? Visit locumstory.com to peruse their trends by specialty tool. They have a list of the top 10 agencies, endless FAQs, and a quiz to help you determine if locums is a fit for your current situation. Again, visit locumstory.com to see if a locum Tenens assignment is right for you. But Paul, tell me about (laughs) the bane of primary care, isolated ALKFAS elevation. I guess this is another bane of primary care.
0: I mean, it's primary care. To be for the audience i mean i know we're preaching to the choir here but primary care is a joy and a privilege uh so don't want to lose sight of that but i will say if, the, if they're the times of make me question my career decision it's generally involves an elevated alkaline phosphatase that happens <laughs> in isolation um and it's it's again I, I think i said this in the show but it's one of those things where I, I might have checked a cmp rather than a bmp and as a result this thing comes back sort of slightly elevated then i don't know what to do with it um, and and Dr. Tapper had the great quote, which she may have been quoting somebody else, but let time be the arbiter of truth in, in many of these patients, where if it's just slightly elevated and they have absolutely no symptoms, you can just sort of watch over time and see and get a sense of the tempo and whether if it's one of those patients where it's slightly elevated than normal, then slightly elevated than normal, you know, you can just kind of keep an eye on that as opposed to someone who progresses or becomes sort of steadily higher, that person might need a little bit closer evaluation. But he's he's uh, you know I think he basically said that he's a fan of the Williams technique of just repeating labs until you get the number that you like, which I, I was pleased <laughs> yeah. to hear.
1: I think we all are, Paul. That's a, it's a great <laughs> technique. Uh, it's time honored. If if you don't like the answer you get, you just keep asking. I think my kids know that. You know, they just keep asking, <laughs> keep asking different parents until they get the answer they want. So with isolated alkaline phosphatase. Really, the workup is pretty similar to what you would think about for somebody with um, with cholestatic liver disease. And Paul, I guess the one sticking point, like before you, you go full into the hepatic workup, do you get a GGT? I know Dr. Tapper has like tutorials about how GGT is... It's an enzyme that is sensitive for many liver diseases, but it's not specific for any one liver disease or even the liver itself. So he doesn't exactly love it for anything. So he says he doesn't use it that often. But in, in primary care, do you use it? Like when you just like initially get this isolated elk phosphat? Is that part of your first round?
0: Not, not to waffle too much. I will. I will usually, especially with mild elevations, I'll repeat um, as as previously discussed. And if it's still slightly elevated, I may actually proceed to to write up a quadrant ultrasound, see if there's anything there. And if that comes back rather unremarkable and it just persists, then I might actually chase down the GGT, just because at that point, you know, I just don't have a clear sense of what's going on, um, and just make sure that I'm not missing. Bone trying to figure if it's other...
1: coming from the liver or the bone exactly or right. somewhere else.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because it is my understanding of GGT is pretty sensitive for liver disease. It just may not tell you which one is doing the yeah. thing. But there are some instances where. You have this alkalphos that's just kind of floating out there that you now you're stuck with it and you feel like you're obligated to work it up and that, I may use it in those rare instances where I just don't have any sense of what's going on. What's, yeah. what's your technique?
1: Well, I, I do try to think about like, do I think this is liver or bone? I mean, sometimes I've noticed sometimes patients with chronic uh, chronic liver disease or or just like bone mineral disease are going to have uh, elevated alkalphos for that reason, and I might go down checking like vitamin D PTH. Right sort of that that kind of work up I I haven't been fractionating alkaline phosphatase I, I that's generally a send out lab but that's something you could do and you could you could prove by sending it out like if is it coming is it the fraction that's from the bone or from the liver so if you work at a really fancy place maybe you can do that in house but I that hasn't been in practice anywhere I've worked locally I've
0: seen um some endocrinologists at Cashlack like North Northeast um, do this. And again, sort of as we're sort of thinking maybe about like a Paget's disease or sort of an unclear elevated Alcphos, I've seen it used in that right. regard, but it's not something I see commonly used. I don't. It's certainly not something I'm sending off.
1: Taking bone off the table, let's say we get an isolated Alcfos, It's it's 175, not that high, everything else is normal. The GGT is up. So we think, okay, maybe this is somewhere coming from the liver. Paul, you mentioned you get a right upper quadrant ultrasound. And then he said, as long as the patient doesn't have like fatigue or itching, in which case he'd be a lot more worried about something like a PBC, you know, he may just keep repeating it. But if you wanted to, it would be reasonable, I think, to get like, we talked about the imaging and then to get like, you know, you could think about those, this could be is this fatty liver again? We talked about fatty liver could cause yep. like some mixed patterns, but I don't usually think about it as much with the isolated Alkfos. But yeah, you could also, you could send the mitochondrial antibody and, you know, I guess you can send, if you're sending that, maybe I would send, if I was really feeling suspicious, I would send the A&A and the anti-smooth muscle. Sure. But I I if generally don't far, go down. Well, I'll yeah. just say, Paul, I I generally don't, get that excited because usually it goes away you know you i i get to the point of like just repeating the lab checking a right upper quadrant monitoring their symptoms and usually i don't get too far with that that specific one
0: yeah and but, I, I just like i said before tempo makes the difference if this yeah. is something that was sort of steady or just kind of bouncing slightly up and bouncing slightly down great fine just watch it but if it's steadily kind of tricking up then i i think you need to yeah be a little bit more suspicious for other possible sort of obstructive like patterns which i think is what you're referring
1: to so I hope that was helpful and not confusing to the audience. And that's, you know, though, because those things, the chronic ALT elevation, that's very mild, the chronic, mild, isolated ALKFAS elevation, you know, that's one of the ones in primary care that I see a lot. And I guess a third one that I think probably doesn't, I don't think too many people get whomped up about this, Paul, is like the isolated hyperbilirubinemia, where the bilirubin somewhere between the range of like... 1.2 and maybe even all the way up to four. Usually I see it in like the 1.2 to maybe 2.5 range or something like that. And I'm I'm usually like, okay, this is probably Gilbert's and what do, what do I do? Dr. Tapper said, you know, fractionate it. So is it direct or indirect? And if it's predominantly right. indirect, unconjugated, it's probably Gilbert's. Make sure the patient's not hemolyzing. So you can either do that with a haptoglobin and an LDH or he said like in his sicker patients in in his liver clinic he he generally has to get a peripheral smear to make sure they're not hemolyzing cuz haptoglobins tough a
0: mess. yeah yeah, have
1: to haptoglobins have tough to uh, interpret in somebody with chronic liver disease and synthetic uh, dysfunction um so to bring us home paul tell me a little bit about like if i'm seeing a pregnant patient in my clinic and they have some sort of liver disease what should i be thinking about they can only have like one or two things right
0: it, well, I mean, they can have all the stuff that we just talked about, which is the the part that is just infuriating. So,
1: <laughs> uh, I was wrong again. You're, a, yeah. thank you, Paul.
0: It's it's not just enough to be pregnant. I mean, they have to be showing <laughs> off with all kinds of liver disease. They're welcome so, yeah. to
1: have any liver disease that they want. Yeah, yeah. That's the viral
0: right. hepatitis, the obstructive diseases that that we sort of typically think about, they can certainly have drug induced liver injury. So they they are they are welcome to have all those things, unfortunately. But then also. You worry about things like preeclampsia. You worry about things like intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. We were talking a little bit off air. Like, happily, this is probably not something I'll be seeing a ton of because I think there's often maternal fetal medicine involved and sort of other people who have a little bit more comfort with this sort of things. But there are a couple of specific diseases that come along with pregnancy that can also throw off your LFTs as well that is, it's worth knowing about.
1: Right. The, so, preeclampsia and intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy were the two big ones that he talked about preeclampsia, of course, uh, I think people are probably a little bit more familiar with working that one up. Intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. He said that could be like out of your pregnant patients coming to him with like liver disease. He said he thinks that would make up about like something like one fifth to two thirds. So like 20, 30% of patients, uh, pregnant patients coming to him would have this. And it's a cholestatic liver injury. They have elevated serum bile salts And he said that's actually something that you monitor. It's a send-out test, but you monitor it because... You want to get that level down below a certain number. It's around like he, I think he said the number 37, which seems very specific, Paul. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure what
0: the units are. That might be yeah. 37 bile salts specifically.
1: Exactly. But anyway, <laughs> you know, probably if you order this test, you're going to have someone helping you interpret it. But anyway, you don't want them to be high, is the point, because the higher the levels are associated with fetal outcomes. And I think the higher the levels, poor fetal outcomes. And so they try to bring them down with ursodiol, which will help. Both the symptoms and hopefully to bring down the the level of serum bile salts, and then the the other medication you might think about adding is colostyramine, which is another one that's it's going to bind up the bile acid salts and hopefully uh, bring them down. Right, so, and again,
0: I, I might not be doing this on my own, um, but he, Dr. Tapper, did make the point to say specifically that Ursodiol specifically does not cause harm. Like they there have been it's been studied, it is safe for both mother and baby. So um, the medications that we use for this. In addition to lowering the bile salts, which has better fetal outcomes, are also safe for uh, pregnant women. So I, I think probably it's important to note.
1: And as a teaser for the audience, keep an keep an ear out for an upcoming episode on OB for the internist, where we talk about such things like what can we, how can we treat these pregnant patients. Uh, it, we we had a lot of great questions answered there. But Paul, I think for now I'm pretty much tapped out on these uh, liver tests. I don't know that I have any more pearls offhand that I wanted to relate to the audience from this one, but they, you know, if they haven't heard it, uh, Dr. Tapper is such a delight and just said so many things that we couldn't possibly share all his wisdom in this shorter show, but please check that out.
0: All right. And with that, that, that feels vaguely valedictory. So I will move on and say, this has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Great classic really (laughs) get your show notes to the curbsiders.com while you're there sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox this will also sign you up for our hilariously named curbsiders digest which took (laughs) me about two months to actually figure out the pun there um, which will show up twice a month for you and keep you updated on all the exciting things that are happening in general medicine so stay more current than your friends so you can show off in clinic and look like the smartest person in the room
1: and we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And we want your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, or send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. I wanted to give a special thanks to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Maddog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on the website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. And so, Paul, with all of that, until next time... I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado,
0: And a few other thanks to Dole Out. We should thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music you're now hearing. We should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterley for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.